All right. I guess it's my turn. How's everyone doing? Good and good morning. Um, I love seeing just the babies and um, the new life that is here in this in this church. And I was actually thinking um, back to our own kids and before we had kids um, about this this night um, where. It was actually May 15th, I remember the night. Um, it was about three, almost three years ago. And I was laying in the pool. I was just floating in the pool. It was about 11.30 p.m. at night. And I was just kind of looking up at the stars and talking to God. And Sarah was about four and a half weeks away from her due date um, with our first kid. And so I was kind of just taking this time to like spend with God and, and think about what is it going to be like to be a parent? And and as I was laying there, I, I remember thinking, like, I am so ready for this. Like, I'm prepared. I know what I'm, I, I, I'm going to be a great dad. And man, I was pretty stupid, actually. Now I think about it, looking back, I, I had no idea what was about to come. I uh, got out of the, the pool and hopped in the shower, got in bed, and Sarah started complaining about some back pain. And I figured she's 36 weeks pregnant. That makes sense. And so I just went to bed. And then uh, about an hour later, she woke me up and, and said, hey, uh, I think I'm having contractions. And I thought, well, it's far too late at night for you to have contractions. That can't be it. <laughs> and so uh, we ended up calling the doctors. And the doctor uh, just said, monitor those contractions, just see, you know, time them and do the thing. So we, we started timing the contractions. And we pretty much did this all night. Um, morning came, about 8 a.m., we went into the hospital. And um, it, it was like this exciting time where we showed up and we were like, okay, we're going to do this. And, and then you wait for a long time, it feels like. You're just kind of sitting there waiting and waiting. Well, at least that's what I was doing. Sarah was doing a lot more work than I was. And um, then all of a sudden, like, it was go time. And the baby came about 6 p.m., and we were so excited, so thrilled, um, you know, just to see his little face for the first time. I'll, I'll never forget that moment. And uh, that first night, you know, you're almost like running on adrenaline at, at the hospital. And there's a little bit of fear that, like, is the baby going to continue to breathe all night? This is the first kid. So you're, you're watching him. You're, every little move, we were up all night just watching the baby. This did not happen with our second kid. We said, he's going to sleep, and we're going to sleep, and that's that. But with the first one, you're like so excited, and you're watching, and I'm a second child, so I know, I know how it is for second children. But uh, the first one, we were up all night, we're so excited, um, spent the whole next day there, next night there, and there comes this moment where the nurses say, okay, like it's time to go home. And at first, I'm excited about it, because I'm like, oh, cool, we get to go home, go to our bed, and then I think wait a second, they've been doing a lot of stuff for us. Like, they've been changing the baby every now and then, and they've been swaddling the baby, and they've been checking on the baby to make sure all the vitals are good, and they're making sure that the baby's getting enough food. And, like, this, these have been our coaches, and now they're saying, like, you're doing it on your own. And you feel that initial sense of, like, am I ready for this? I don't know. And so we, we put uh, Judah in his, like, little going-home outfit which is, again, a thing you only do with first kids. 
Um, and he blew it out, and we had to change him before we even got out the room. But uh, we get down to the car, we get downstairs, I pull the car around to the very front of the hospital, and um, I realize I haven't set up the car seat yet. And so I have this moment where I think, oh, okay, this won't take very long. Like, I'll just slap the car seat in. That's what you do, you slap it in. And so I get the car seat, and I begin looking at it, and I'm finding out there's multiple pieces. There's not just one piece to a car seat. And I'm not really quite sure how it works. And I'm a pretty handy guy, and I feel like I usually figure these types of things out pretty quickly. About five, ten minutes goes by of me fiddling with this thing, not knowing how to get the... I don't even know how to get the straps loosened to get the baby into the thing in the first place. And so I'm on YouTube on my phone out front of the hospital. Like, we're literally in, like, the, the roundabout spot. I'm on my phone watching a YouTube video of how to install a car seat. There's a guy who's, like, ten feet away smoking a cigarette in front of the hospital trying to yell things at me, like, no, you're not doing it right. And it's, like, kind of getting, getting me anxious. I'm like, he's our secondhand smoke and our child, and I got to hurry. And there comes this moment where <clears throat> I get so frustrated, and I don't know if it's the tiredness or the fact that I was probably really hungry or what it was, but there's this point that comes of just pure, like, desperation. This moment of... I, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. Like, I can't even get the baby in the car seat and in the car. How am I going to be a parent? Like, how am I going to raise a child? I can't even do the very first part, which is supposed to be easy. I don't know if I can do it. I think it's going to, and I literally thought, like, is this going to be too much? Can I handle this? Is this impossible? The story that we're going to read today, I think the, the disciples get to this same point. This, they're hungry, and they're tired, and they just feel completely inadequate, and they get desperate, and they think, I don't think I can do this. This might be impossible. It's a story uh, many people are familiar with. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Um, and, and each gospel has a slightly different focus, but they all tell the same story. And it's not just a story about 5,000 people getting their bellies filled. There's, there's a lot more going on. It's not just a story about 5,000 people get, getting a free lunch. There, there's more to it than that. And we're going to see that this is actually a story about a revolution, that this is a story about calling, and it's a story about death. So we're going to pick up in Mark 6, verse 30. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. Lord, we just ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us. Lord, take away everything that is not of you this morning. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, this is the story about more. Verse 30, Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So just before this, I'll give you a little reminder. Jesus has sent out the disciples to go and to preach and to teach and to do miracles. He sends them on this little missionary journey. 
And they've gone out and they've done amazing things. They're preaching about God and the kingdom of God and about Jesus and they're, and, and they're doing miracles. They're healing people and they're casting out demons and they come back and they're excited and they're feeling like, I've got this. I'm doing great. And they're telling Jesus about all that they had done and taught. Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me, with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. So it's busy. There's, I mean, there's people coming to them constantly. And, and, and Jesus realized, it says they didn't even have a chance to eat. Like they're so busy. They don't have a time to take 10 minutes to go eat together. And Jesus looks at them and he realizes, he realizes they're tired. So he says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. We're going to get some rest. Verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Jesus grabs his disciples and he's essentially saying, we're going on a retreat. It's going to be us. You're going to get some rest. It's going to be awesome. But there's other things that happen. Verse 33, but many who saw them leaving recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So first off, this is a story about a revolution. You might be thinking, what? A story about a revolution? That doesn't make any sense. This is a story about a picnic. This is a, this is a happy story, right? This is a story, I mean, you... I picture, you know, growing up, I always pictured it in my head that there's this green grass and like everyone's brought their blanket and, and, you know, maybe the disciples are playing some badminton and, you know, it's just like this fun outdoor picnic time that everyone gets to have. But the context um, actually tells us that something completely different is happening. It's not like a picnic at all. That actually they, they leave... And they go across the lake, and they're trying to get away. And so they go to this remote area. And this remote area that they go to was actually like the hotbed for the revolutionary resistance for all of Rome. So like it's the people who want to overthrow the Romans. It's the zealots. It's these freedom fighters. They're hiding out, out in these remote areas. And so they go out in these remote, this remote area, and... And thousands come together. Thousands gather. In the middle of nowhere, thousands of people show up. And when it says 5,000 men, it probably means that they're, those, it's just counting the heads of households. So there was maybe more like 15 or 20,000. But it also could mean that there was 5,000 men because just the men might have showed up. Because what, what, what's going on here? John, in his gospel account, uh, just comes out right out and says it. In John 6, 15, it says, They intended to come and make him, Jesus, make him king by force. See, these people are here because they want a revolution. They, they, they showed up. It's more likely that they showed up with pitchforks and torches than, than picnic blankets. Like, they're angry. I mean, we just finished the story Jared told last week where uh, Herod beheads John the Baptist. And he talked about how everyone hates this Herod, this king. 
puppet king. And so they want that guy out, and they've decided Jesus is going to be our new leader. He's going to be our new political and, and military leader, and we're going to come together, and we're like, this is going to be the start of the revolution. And it says when Jesus sees them as he has compassion on them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep uh, are, are kind of dumb animals, um, which we get compared to sheep a lot in the Bible. Uh, but sheep are kind of dumb animals, and sheep without a shepherd die because sheep, like, they need someone to take care of them. They need someone to protect them. They need someone who's, who's going to, when they fall over, they need help getting up. I mean, they're, they're pretty helpless little animals. And so he, he sees these people, and he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And there's actually more to it than just them being these helpless animals. He's actually um, quoting Moses here. In Numbers 27, Moses talks, and, and he uses the same phrase, sheep without a shepherd, when he's asking God to give them a political and military leader after he goes. So in, Moses, or in Numbers 27, verse 15, it says this. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses is getting towards the end of his life, and he's realizing that the Israelites are going to need a leader. They're going to need someone who can take them into the promised land. There's going to be battles. He's praying about Joshua here. He's praying for a military leader. And so when Jesus repeats these words, he's seeing that these people want a military and political leader. That's what they want him to be. And it says he has compassion on them. And then he does something pretty unexpected, pretty interesting. It says that he begins to teach them many things. He starts preaching to them. And then, of course, later we're going to see that he gives them bread. He, he ends up giving them his word, and he ends up giving them his bread. And what he's really doing here, what's happening here? I mean, normally when, when someone comes to start a revolution and they've, they've decided, okay, that's going to be the leader, the leader gathers people and does what? They start handing out weapons, right? Because here we go, we're going to go fight. But Jesus comes and he gives out his word and bread, what is bread, the significance of bread? I mean, for us in the 21st century, bread is like, the significance is like carbs. Like, ooh, I broke my diet, had some bread. I'm bad. Um, but, but for them in, in ancient times, bread meant life. Because you didn't know when you were going to get your next meal. And, and, and you didn't have all these options of food to eat from. Bread meant life. And so when Jesus comes and gives his word and, and bread to these people, he gives them life in two ways, with his word and indeed in the bread. See, most revolutionary leaders come dealing death, but Jesus comes to give life. He does something that no other revolutionary leader would do, and he's starting a revolution that none of them expected at all. I was thinking about the miracles of Jesus. And I think I've always just assumed that, that God does miracles because he wants people to see his power. 
He wants people to see that he, he can do it, right? So that people would go, wow, look at the power of Jesus. He must be God's son. Well, there's actually a little more to it than that. I mean, nowadays, you know, people do public spectacles so that people will say, wow. But that's not what Jesus is doing. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus, if he wanted to get people to say, wow, you have power, look at that power you have. He could do a lot of different things. I mean, what he does here with feeding the 5,000, we're going to find out it's pretty sneaky. Like, it, 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 it's not like a big out in front of everyone. You know, it could almost sneak by without a lot of people noticing what's happening. I mean, if Jesus wanted to show off his power, why wouldn't he just, like, fly up in the air and shoot lightning bolts out of his hands and light the trees on fire? And, you know, everyone would be like, whoa, that guy has power. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He never does that. Because Jesus in, in miracles is not simply trying to show us the fact of his power, but he's trying to show us the redemptive purpose of his power. So we, we usually think of miracles as, as the supernatural breaking into the natural, like the supernatural occurrence that breaks into our natural world. But Jürgen Moltmann, the uh, German philosopher, says this, that Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. What's he saying here? He's saying that when God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, there was no disease, there was no hunger, there was no death, there was no poverty. And the miracles of Jesus are simply restorations of what's already been. They're restorations of the natural order. See, the, the miracles are meant to point to the fact that in Genesis 1 and 2, that those things are coming again. That, that again it will come that there is no death and no disease and, and no hunger and no injustice. One day those things are coming again. His miracles are actually putting back together the things that are broken. And see, when he shows them these miracles, it gives them the knowledge that this coming revolution, when you know that Jesus is going to put back together all that's broken, it gives you a freedom that no political leader could give you. It gives you a freedom, a liberation of soul and spirit that's greater than any political liberation you could experience. So he's starting a revolution. It's not a revolution they're expecting, but he's doing one nonetheless. And, and then two, this is a story about calling. Verse 35, it says, By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So they come to Jesus and they're like, we have no way to feed all these people that are here. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. This is the point where I feel like the, the disciples are tired and they're hungry, and a little bit 
taken off guard, and Jesus says, you go feed the 5,000, and they think, this is impossible. I can't, I can't do it. We can't do this. There's 5,000 people here. I mean, they answer him. It says, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? I mean, the, this is not something that we are capable of, Jesus. I don't, we don't have that kind of power. We don't have that kind of money. That's more than, than we're capable of. How quickly they go from sharing about the miracles they got to do with Jesus on the other side of the lake to now thinking this is beyond what I'm capable of. This is beyond us. Verse 38, Jesus responds to them. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five loaves and two fish. So we find out in another account of, of this story that this is actually five loaves and two fish taken from a little boy who um, offers it up to the disciples. And, and you know that there's a mom out there somewhere who way overpacked a lunch for her son, a little helicopter mom. But here's these five loaves and two fish, which is totally inadequate to feed 5,000 people. I mean, completely inadequate. But it doesn't phase Jesus at all. It says that Jesus direct, directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is an amazing miracle. I mean, just to, to think about five, feeding 5,000 people till their bellies were full. I don't know if anyone's been to a conference lately or if those still exist, but um, I, I remember being at a conference years ago um, with thousands of people. And at the conference, you know, they usually give you a little schedule. And on the schedule, it said, lunch on your own. It was like an hour for lunch on your own. So you were meant to, to leave the conference, go out to one of the restaurants in the city, and, and then come back. And that's what is happening here. The, the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, let's do lunch on our own. Like we, we're not ready for feeding this amount of people. And, and Jesus comes back to them with something that's Seems outrageous, seems impossible. He says, you do it. You feed them. He, does it, he, he, he commands them to do it on purpose because he wants them, them to notice, yeah, that's impossible. And then he steps in. See, he could have just made all of the food appear, right? Like he, he could have Albus Dumbledore the food just to drop on everyone's lap. And, you know, he didn't have to do it this way, but he takes... The, the food which they already have, which is inadequate, it's not enough. They've, he takes what they have, and then only as the disciples go out with this inadequate food is it multiplied. Only as they begin to take a step and, and go out with this little amount of food does he begin to multiply it. See, what God is calling us to do 
as followers is impossible. It will take a miracle. The, the calling that he has placed on our lives should be, it, it's too big for us on our own. And if, if you think it's digestible, then the call, you're not, you don't have a big enough vision of what God has for you. There's a commentary I was reading that says this about it, that it's not God's intention that we should in ourselves be adequate for our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate if we only accept the tasks for which we think we are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. God is calling us to trust him in a way where there is no plan B. He's called us as believers to this great calling to step out in faith and do things that we don't think we have the capabilities to do. But when we step out, he multiplies. When we step out, he shows up. See, the, the, the disciples have never seen this happen before. It's not like he took them aside and said, hey, I'm going to do this thing where I'm, I'm going to multiply the fish and the bread as you guys go out. Um, so, you know, just kind of go out and give it out slowly so, you know, that it can have time to multiply in your basket or whatever. He doesn't do that. He just says, he, he, he breaks the bread, he gives it to them, and then they go. They just obey. They do what Jesus is calling them to do, not knowing how he's going to show up, knowing he is going to show up. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this about this kind of faith. He says, pseudo-faith, a fake faith, always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails. But real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse, and not since Adam has first stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. See, we're, we're called to take the step, and then God shows up. We're called to, to not have a plan B when it comes to, to our faith in Jesus. My old preacher, uh, or my old pastor in, in Tucson, he used to tell me that I ought to be a white-knuckle preacher because white-knuckle preachers are the best. I, first, I didn't know what that meant. I, I know what white-knuckling, you know, like the steering wheel is, where you're holding on real tight because you might be afraid for what's going to happen next. But he, he said, you, we need to be white-knuckle preachers. And what he's saying there is, he was saying, if God doesn't show up in your preaching, nothing is going to happen. You, you ought to know that there's no amount of cleverness, there's no amount of good stories, there's no amount of, um, you know, being smart enough. There, there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to make any difference if God doesn't show up. And so we white knuckle, we hold on to the fact that God is going to show up. That's where the power is, not, not in our cleverness, not in our uh, well-laid plans. And I'm not saying well-laid plans are bad. Well-laid plans are good. But if God doesn't show up, nothing's going to happen. Finally, this is a story about death. And you might be thinking, well, didn't you say at the beginning that God came to deal life, not death? And that is true. He did come to give life to us. 
Here's what I mean. Verse 41 gives us a, a little bit of an overview of what I'm talking about. It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke, broke the loaves. And that the wording here, it literally means that he blessed and broke. He blessed and broke. And this same wording comes out again later in Mark in chapter 14, verse 22, during the Last Supper, during the, on the night that he's betrayed, it says that he takes the bread and he says, this is my body, and he blesses and breaks. And what he's telling his disciples is that this is how I'm going to do it. This is how the revolution is going to happen. You, you want a res- revolution, you want liberation from oppression, I'm going to give you eternal liberation from sin and death. You want physical rest, I'm going to give you rest for your souls. You, you want your hunger fulfilled, I'm going to give you a, a fulfillment of spiritual hunger that only I can give. And here's how I'm going to do it, by breaking. See, on the cross, Jesus looks at the people killing him and then looks up to heaven and says, Jesus, forgive them for what they know not what they do. And then he dies. You might say he blesses and then breaks. When, when Jesus takes the bread in, the, in this miracle, takes the bread in this story, he is showing us, he, it's a foreshadowing of what he's going to do for us, that he's going to break for us on the cross. He gives us true rest. He gives us true freedom only because he's broken for us. He takes our place. That's, I mean, that's how it works when you eat bread. See, when you eat bread, you have to break it in order to consume it and, and to get the life that it gives you. If the bread stays whole, then I, that means I'm not eating it, which means I'm not receiving the life, which means I'm dying. I'm breaking. It's either the bread breaks or, or I do. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who has come to be broken for you. I'm, I'm the one who has come to die so that you don't have to. It's precisely what he does on the cross, is lays down his life for us. That's the kind of king he is. That's the kind of revolutionary leader he is. He doesn't call his people to go die for him. He dies for his people. And when you see that, it brings a freedom, a revolution in, in your soul that lasts for eternity. So as the band comes back up, I want us to just think of a few things. What could God be calling me to do? What, what have I thought, man, maybe this is too big or I can't do this. But you keep feeling like God is nudging you. God is calling you. What does that first step look like where, where we can just trust God and trust that he's going to show up and do bigger things than, than I could even imagine? When we first started talking about where we're going to go after the middle school, after we get, got kicked out, I started getting a little negative, I gotta say. I started thinking like, we can't do this. We're not gonna end up anywhere. I mean, we can't afford anything and you know, what, 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 are we gonna, what are we gonna do? And we just 
took steps of faith. Jared did. I took steps of unfaith, I guess. (laughs) And now God has done abundantly more than I could have ever, ever, ever imagined in bringing these churches together and, and making this happen. He's done so much more than um, I expected. I thought it was impossible, and God knew it wasn't in his power. That's our king. Loves us that much. Will we follow him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us like that, for calling us to be part of your miracle that we should take a step of faith and you multiply. We give you what we have and you do more than we could ever imagine. Lord, I pray that you would do a revolution in our hearts, in, in, in our congregation, that you would Allow us to taste and see how good you are. Lord, we, we don't know in what ways you're going to show up, but we trust that you are going to show up. And we thank you for that. I love you. In your name we pray. Amen.